0: A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and went to live in Capernaum by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that what had been said through Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit in darkness have seen a great light. On those dwelling in a land overshadowed by death, light has arisen. From that time on, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. In the eighteenth century, states like Alabama, Kentucky, Ohio were still considered part of the wild frontier, the wild west. And the Baptists and the Methodists were quite aggressive in their missionary activity in evangelizing those states. The Catholics, mm, they were not as adventuresome at that point. But the Baptists and the Methodists were. And they were very successful, especially in small towns, where it was not uncommon to have a Baptist church and a Methodist church directly in front of each other on opposite sides of the street. Now, come Sunday morning, their services were scheduled at the same time. They would open their windows and begin to worship. And even though they had the same roots as Christian traditions with basically the same doctrines and you know, historical similarities, rivalries began to develop between these two congregations. And that even got reflected in their hymnody. For example, one verse in a Baptist hymn said this, I'm a Baptist, 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 a Baptist till I die. For if I stay a Baptist, I'll go to live on high. Now, not to be outdone by what they considered presumption, the Methodists had this verse. The devil, the Baptists, and old Tom Paine have tried their best, but all in vain. They can't prevail. The reason is the Lord defends the Methodists. (laughs) So you see what started to happen here is a rivalry that was not all that inspiring. In fact, the accounts that describe this time in history say the majority of the town sat on the steps of the saloon and listened on Sunday morning as these two rival communities sang back and forth. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. They didn't want any of that squabbling. So they waited till the Catholics came, and they brought the booze. (laughs) Honestly, a woman told me that last night. (laughs) She's from Kentucky. She said, yeah, the saloons were closed until the Catholics came our contribution. (laughs) But you see, what they ended up doing was focusing on their differences and not their similarities. And that's not been uncommon throughout religious history. Religious rivalries have existed since the earliest days of Christianity, as we heard in today's second reading. Now, what was going on there was this. In Corinth, a Greek city where Paul had preached, there were these small communities called house churches, and it's where the people gathered on the Lord's Day to share the Eucharist and to learn about their faith. And these little communities began to get into a competitive rival-like relationship based on who their leader or their founder was. So Paul hears about that. He says somebody from Chloe's community told, said there was a little snitch in that community and told Paul that all of this is going on. So he says that. I hear some of you say, I belong to Paul, I belong to Peter, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Christ. It would be hard to trump that one. But they, again, made the mistake of emphasizing the differences and overlooked their similarities. And Paul is quite displeased with this and really takes them to task with some strong words. In fact, he says in a very compelling statement that when they do this, they empty the cross of its meaning. They empty the cross of its meaning. Now think about that. Who could do that? Who could empty the cross of its meaning? For St. Paul, the cross was the supreme paradox that was revealed in Jesus Christ. And it was paradoxical because in the ancient world, it was the most shameful form of execution. It was an expression of defeat, of powerlessness. But in Jesus, it became the greatest sign of victory, of glory. In other words, in the cross, God was presenting a new vision, a vision radically different from the way the world saw reality. The world saw the cross as defeat, humiliation, weakness, loss of power, surrender. But Christians saw the cross as victory and strength and a new sort of power, that could only come into people's lives after human power failed. So for Paul, when these communities started that rivalry, going back and forth about who was more important, he said they were still seeing with the vision of the world, a vision that saw status and prestige and recognition as important. And they forgot that the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, was about humility and surrender and recognizing that only one reality mattered. In the end, it was Christ. What these communities had to learn was that they were not the source of their own unity. The source of unity was Christ. And that's a lesson that the church or the churches that have splintered throughout our history, it's a lesson we're still learning. Whether it's Roman Catholicism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Lutherans, Baptists, Methodists, Episcopalians, none of those is the source of its own unity. That is only Christ. And so every year, the church gives us, beginning this week, what it calls the week of prayer for Christian unity, when universally we are invited to pray and to ponder about what are the things that unite us? What are the beliefs and the practices that we have in common as opposed to the things that differentiate us, that divide us. Because we so often spend a lot of energy focusing on those. Not just in these different religious traditions of the Christian faith, but even in Roman Catholicism, in our own tradition, we do a lot of that. We use phrases like, liberal and conservative, right-wing, left-wing, those who prefer Pope Benedict, may he rest in peace, and those who prefer Pope Francis. And when we do that, when we emphasize those differences, then we are not a credible witness to the world because there is only one who unites us, and that one is Christ. And we learn that these differences don't really make that much difference to him. You know, I have great respect for religious communities of women who really evangelized our country. And years ago, when most of them decided to make their external garb, their habit optional, which was the sign of unity in some ways. You saw in communities some did, some didn't, some wore the habit, some did parts of it, the veil, no veil. But what was so powerful, I thought, was in a community where there were all of these different optional forms of dress, they could still keep their focus on what the essential values were on their charism, their gifts, and on Christ. They could still maintain that unity. And that is possible for all of us. I suspect we've all been to a concert or symphony or watched one on TV. And you know, it always begins with the orchestra warming up, the instruments tuning, it's the most painful part of the whole event because you hear this cacophony of sounds and these instruments that seem to be competing with one another <clears throat> until the conductor comes out and everything falls silent and he raises his baton and suddenly all the chaos and the noise disappears and the various instruments work together in a harmonious blend, and oh, what beautiful music they produce. I think our churches and our lives are like that scenario. We're all those individual instruments with our unique sounds, but when we follow the direction of the conductor, Christ, we come to realize that it can all work together and that the differences are actually blessings and that what leads us is Christ and from that emerges this harmonious, beautiful music. Can you hear it?